Well, good morning. So glad we could be here together to worship the Lord. This morning we are going to be taking a little detour from our current series in the book of Matthew. We're going to be looking at Psalm 1, so if you have a Bible, I invite you to turn there. Uh, I want to just explain this briefly. The Psalms are part of the wisdom literature in the Bible, and as such, they tell us about what wisdom looks like. This particular psalm is also a a wisdom psalm. And so what we're going to get out of this is a lot about what wisdom looks like in Scripture. Okay, And throughout the Bible, wisdom is not merely uh, intellectual knowledge, but it's a life well lived, which equates to righteousness. So this passage teaches us a great deal, not so much about learning, but about living. And it shows us that there's two paths. There's the path of the righteous and the path of the wicked. The path of the righteous leads to flourishing and life, and the path of the wicked leads to death. So, with that, I want you to understand from the very beginning that this passage is going to help us see an ideal picture of what this righteous life would look like, and it's going to point us to Jesus and help us worship Him for who He is and how He gives us His righteousness. But I want you to also see how this passage invites us to a way of living to emulate our life after Christ and to live in such a way that reflects His goodness in our life every day. Of course, we're not going to do this perfectly, but that's why we have Jesus and His righteousness. So, I invite you to look at the Word of God with me as we look at Psalm 1 together. Let's read this text and then begin. It says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers or mockers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Let's pray together. Lord, this morning I simply want people, and myself included, to fall in love with you, to see your grace and your glory, and that that would shape the way we live. Lord, I pray that this morning you would disrupt those who are too comfortable, and I pray that you would give comfort to those who are in fact disrupted. We pray it in your name. Amen. The other day I was driving down Wilma Rudolph, uh, and I got parked behind at a red light this semi-truck that was a Baskin-Robbins truck, and all over it had these canvas pictures of ice cream and delicacies, and it said, follow me to happiness. (laughs) So after I got back in the car with my ice cream, I realize that this is really true. There is a sense in which when I get ice cream, I really am made happy for a temporary period of time. Usually 20 to 30 minutes, I'm really, really happy. The next couple hours, not so much. And it made me realize that the world all around us is selling us an idea of what happiness is. Our passage this morning starts by saying, blessed is the man. Blessed. This word carries this meaning of a life of happiness, a a sense of a life well lived which is wisdom, which is righteousness. And so what I want us to catch from this is that 
while we may have many things that make us happy in this life for a short period of time, nothing in this world makes us ultimately happy other than a relationship with Jesus. That's the relationship that offers us a sense of joy and contentment that far exceeds and is far more substantial than any happiness we could find in this world. And so I want you to see that Jesus is the path of righteousness. Not just that he walked the path of righteousness, but he is our path of righteousness. And only through a relationship with him can we have this true, lasting sense or state of happiness. So with that, I want us to turn to the path of righteousness. I want us to consider verse 1. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. Let me give you a simple explanation of what's going on here. This is a path of righteousness that avoids evil, that avoids everything that is contrary to God or to his law. And this is a really neat little verse that captures some Hebrew poetic uh, parallelism. And one commentator puts it this way. He says, to walk with someone is to be associated with them, but not as deeply as to stand with them or to sit with them. So each part of this verse intensifies the relationship with evil, and it also uses more forceful terms for that evil, such as wickedness, sinners, scoffers, or mockers. And those mockers are the most evil people since they not only sin, but they also turn around and mock the innocent. So it intensifies the association of the evil. Another commentator puts it this way, the order of these verbs may indicate a gradual descent into evil in which one first walks alongside and then stops and then takes up permanent residence in the company of the wicked. I think that's kind of neat. So this passage, we have to remember that it points us to Christ who's the only one who is ever able to perfectly avoid evil and live a righteous life. But this passage also points us toward, towards how we would live as Christ would live, how we would emulate Christ. I mean, as a Christian, we literally take on his name. Our identity bears his name. So we would live in a way that reflects him in this world around us. And that means that we need to avoid evil and the things that are contrary to God. So let me talk to you a little bit about what the Christian life and the sin struggle might look like for us. At our church, if you've been here for very long, we teach a doctrine called total depravity. This doctrine teaches us that from the very moment of our conception and birth, we are predisposed, twisted towards the things that are contrary to God and his law, that we are set upon sin and the things that are opposite God and his righteousness. So let me also remind you that for those of us who are in Christ, who have trusted Jesus as our Lord and Savior, have a relationship with him, we also are given a new heart and are able to live out of righteousness instead of this depravity, that through the power of the Spirit indwelling in us, we actually have the ability to choose the Lord in some sense. So I want you to consider with me a couple passages. You might write these down and check them out. Ezekiel 36, Romans 6, and 1 Corinthians 10. <clears throat> Let me read these in turn. And as I do, I want you to consider God's action versus our action. Ezekiel 36, 26 through 27 says, of the Lord, and I will give you a new heart. God's action. I will give it to you. And a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove your heart of stone from your flesh and give you 
part of flesh. Now I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. God did all that. We did none of that. So we've been given this new heart and this new spirit. Consider also that we have been set free from the slavery of sin, Romans 6. And they know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For the one who has died has been set free from sin. And then consider this. For sin will have no dominion over you. For you are not under the law, but under grace. We're no longer slaves to sin, Christians. That's a big deal. We have a new heart and a new spirit. 1 Corinthians 10, listen to this. No temptation has overtaken you that's not common to man. God is faithful. And he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability, but with the temptation he will also provide what? A way of escape that you may be able to endure it. What I want you to catch here is that God has empowered us as Christians with a new heart and a new spirit that we would be able to overcome sin and avoid it like the psalmist calls us to, like Jesus did perfectly. We certainly never will do it perfectly, but to live this path of righteousness and emulate Christ, we must avoid sin. In Genesis 39, we see this really interesting story of Joseph, Joseph and Potiphar's wife. Joseph was this handsome man, it says so in the text, and that he was seduced by Potiphar's wife. He had risen to power. He was so successful. Everything that he touched basically turned to gold. And then Potiphar's wife just comes at him and invites him into her bed with him. And she's persistent, but I mean, you read the text, you'll see she is really hot and bothered after him. And at one point, she pursues him so strongly that she grabs a hold of him and says, come to bed with me. And what do you see there? You don't see Joseph praying for strength, right? You do not see Joseph trying to talk her out of it and saying, we shouldn't do this. You see him leaving his cloak in her arms and running away. And that's the power of God, that he has enough power, enough strength in the new heart, in the new flesh to pursue avoidance by getting away. You don't see him lingering. You see him getting away. And I would have us be reminded that we must do the same in our lives. That for us to pursue the Christian life, the righteous life that emulates after Jesus, we must avoid sin altogether. Of course, Jesus was the only one who did this perfectly. Being tempted in the desert by Satan himself, Jesus completely avoided this sin and evil, and he fulfilled the law of God perfectly. And, and our calling is to strive towards this and be holy as I am holy, the Lord said. That's our calling. Though the power at work with us is how we would accomplish this. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't befriend the people of the world around us, those who do not know Jesus, but it does call us to be in the world, but not of the world. So it's a distinctly different path that we would live, that we would avoid the evil in our lives so that, as it says in verse 2, we would pursue God. So instead of what you see in verse 1, we see in verse 2, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. So instead of walking and standing and sitting in the way of the wicked and the sinners and the mockers, the righteous person reflects 
or meditates on the Lord on the Lord in their walking, their sitting, and their standing. Make sense? So it's this beautiful contrast. So what you basically see here is that this person that perfectly is embodied in Jesus and how we are called to strive, this is a person who loves the Lord and pursues him, actually tries to have a relationship with the Lord. And yes, if this sounds a little idealistic, and as Deuteronomy 6 said earlier, uh, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength, it, it is a little idealistic. And only Jesus is the one who's able to fulfill this perfectly, but we're still called to strive towards this. The good news is that he did it perfectly so that we don't have to. And when it says in verse 2 that his delight is in the law of the Lord, I want you to catch something important. That this law is not merely commandments and things that we should not do, but this is the entirety of God's word. This, is the, this carries the, the meaning of the instructions or the guidelines, if you will, of the Christian life, the whole word of God. And for us, we understand that to be God's love story to us, the church, the gospel message. And so we should be considering and meditating on this good news all the time. I want you to catch that there's a cyclical process in this. Okay, This meditation that it calls us to is not initiated merely by duty, but by delight. This meditation is not driven merely by duty, but but by delight. And it's a delight that's essentially our worshiping the Lord. This delight drives us towards meditation. But meditation also helps us discover delight. Because we're, we're searching out the Scriptures. We're falling more in love with the Lord. We're pursuing Him in prayer in a relationship. So because the more you meditate on the love of God the more you might actually love God. Does that make sense? I mean, it is a cyclical process. So as we do that, it creates delight. And then the more you delight in Him or worship Him and His instruction, the more you want to what? Spend time with Him. Meditate on these things. Pursue the Lord. Good instructions produce right results. Don't they? Um. At my house, I've put together a lot of furniture, um, and I don't really care to do it because it's usually not very good furniture, but there is this one piece of furniture that stands out as a real beacon of hope. Typically, the instructions are not very good, and it usually goes poorly because I don't like to read instructions anyway, Um, but this one particular piece of furniture went together so well, and I just could not stop talking about it because the instructions were so clear and, and just clever that it produced exactly what it was supposed to do, and it, it did it so seamlessly. It was a beautiful thing. If you've been to our house, it's a six-foot-high bookshelf that stands in the corner of our living room. It has books and pictures and candles and stuff like that on it. And it was just a real joy to put together because good instructions produce right results. Have you ever seen the bumper sticker that says, if all else fails, follow the instructions, and then there's a picture of a Bible next to it? I don't really care for Christian bumper stickers all that much, but I think there's some real wisdom in that. And what it's getting at is this. God has created us to live in this world in a certain way. And that way is this, that we would worship and obey Him in all things. That's the way of the Christian life. And when we do live according to God's guidelines or His laws, we have this state of happiness, this blessedness 
that the psalmist used to describe uh, this life. Because we're quite literally living according to God's designs, which puts us in right relationship with the Lord, and it also puts us essentially in right relationship with each other, and it causes us to flourish. Let me show you this in verse 3. It says, He is like a, a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all he does, he prospers. This is pretty clearly a picture of flourishing in life, isn't it? I mean, can you imagine just seeing this out at like Coldstream Christian Camp? This is a beautiful picture, a restful, serene picture. It happens through avoiding contamination or evil, as we saw in the first verse, but also taking in the life-giving nourishment. I heard one pastor commenting on a similar passage like this where he says that he had planted two fruit trees in his yard, one in the front, one in the back. The one in the back was able to receive a tremendous amount of water because it was in direct line of the sprinkler system. So twice a day it was getting watered. He said that after a year and a half, the two trees were totally different. He said that the tree that had been watered twice a day had exponentially outgrown and outfruited the other tree. It's not just a mere avoidance of contaminations or toxins or evil, but it's the life-giving nourishment of this water by being fed that it is able to flourish and grow and fruit. John 15, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the, the branches. Abide in me and I in you, and you will bear much fruit. I want you to catch that there's four features of this tree that I think are worth us paying attention to. First, that it fruits in season, it says. That it yields its fruit in its season. The tree is doing exactly what it was created to do. It was doing exactly what it was created to do. Ephesians 2.10 reminds us of this same concept for us. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus. For what? For good works. Which God did what? He prepared beforehand. Lest any of us would think that this comes out of our own strength and righteousness. That we should walk in them. So when we do this, we're actually living according to our design and living according to our very calling. The second feature I want you to see is that its leaf does not wither. This is a picture of perseverance and endurance. If you have been given the gift of salvation, Christian, you can't lose it. Let that sink in for a minute. The gift of salvation given to you is a gift that you cannot lose because you did not earn it. The tree's leaf does not wither. The Christian life perseveres. The third feature I want you to see is that it, this is fully a result of God's grace to you and to me because the tree was planted. He's like a tree planted, used the passive voice here to describe the planting of this, that there's no activity on the tree or the man himself, that the tree is planted by the master gardener, the Lord, by these streams of water. So therefore, again, all of this fruiting, all of this flourishing, and all of this perseverance is God's grace to you. The final thing I want you to see here is that it says, in all that he does, he prospers. Now, must there be any confusion? This is not the prosperity gospel. We do not believe that this 
the way that we live our lives automatically creates these worldly blessings in our life. That, that is not what this is about. But there is a sense that when we follow good instructions, God's Word, it produces good results. And so I want you to see that if you are following God's instructions and living in the law and living in the, the, the Word and meditating on these things, um, and essentially in a right relationship with the Lord vertically, it's going to impact the way you live horizontally. If you're walking in love horizontally out of a place of love for the Lord vertically, you're probably going to experience some real tangible blessings. Okay, here's a couple. You're probably going to have more healthy relationships because you're walking in love. You're probably going to experience some sense of peace instead of constant worry. You're probably going to experience some sense of success in your workplace because you probably have integrity. You probably follow the rules because that's integrity. And you probably are treating people well. You're probably respected for that. And you're probably also going to experience the blessings of not having a myriad of sin-entangling, life-altering, and just debilitating things that afflict you, like addiction, adultery, deception, theft, and abuse. All of these trappings we can avoid through the Spirit, the power of the Spirit. And so the second thing that I think this shows us, and the more important thing, is that in all that he does, he prospers. This reminds me of Psalm 37.4, that the more you grow into the likeness of Christ, and your worldview changes, it's like this verse, delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. So that doesn't mean that we get whatever we want. Rather, it means that God transforms our desires into his desires. As we grow more and more into God's likeness through studying and meditating on the law and worshiping him in all things, he transforms our hearts so that our desires are actually his desires. So that means that even if your life is filled with hardships or persecutions, or maybe this one little calling that is certainly not comfortable taking up our cross daily, there's a way in which the Christian is assured of God's presence and we can flourish. Are the hardships any less hard? No, they're hard. They're really hard but there's a sense in which God still is with us. Verse 6 says that the Lord knows the way of the righteous. And let me tell you about that. That, that knowing is an intimate, beautiful shepherding and watching over, such that the Christian life is marked by the presence of God and assurance of His goodness for us, so that we can know that we are being sustained by the Lord. What about the path of the wicked? Well, it's pretty easy to explain the rest of this passage. It's essentially the opposite of what you've already heard. It says in verse 4, the wicked are not so. Everything you've just heard, the wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Where the righteous would avoid evil and pursue God, the wicked avoid God and pursue evil. And then he gives us this really, really vivid, contrasting image 
where we've been seeing this beautiful, fruiting, flourishing tree, he gives us the picture of chaff. That the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. Do y'all know what chaff is? There's some really fascinating videos on YouTube. You should check it out. Chaff, it's, I mean, it's, it's amazing. Uh, there is so much organic material that is wasted when you harvest grain. So much. And this is chaff. Chaff is dry, lightweight, lifeless, and it literally blows away in the wind. It has the equivalent value of dust. It has no purpose. It is complete waste. The contrast could not be more descriptive. A tree planted by streams of water or a dyed and dry and dead, lifeless, worthless chaff. It's like tumbleweed or dust. It's, it's kind of like the burnt uh, crumbs at the bottom of your toaster. It just, there's nothing there. There's no purpose. You just got to throw it away. Which leads the psalmist to conclude in verse 5 and 6, Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The way of the wicked leads to death. This is all, in verse 5 and 6, another way of saying that they are completely opposite of the righteous because they've rejected the righteousness of Christ. Well, the righteous will have a right standing before God because they're justified by faith alone in Him. The righteous will be, or the, I'm sorry, the wicked will be cast out where they'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So these verses are pressing upon the reality that there's only two paths. One path that leads to life and one path that leads to death. One path is the path of Christ and His righteousness given to us, and the other path is the rejection of Him. Today, you have a choice to make. Today, you have a choice as to which path you will follow, the path of Christ or the path of the world. Let me tell you, some of you are wicked in God's sight, as this passage makes clear. The beautiful thing is that we're all, outside of God's grace, wicked in God's sight. But for those of you who have not trusted in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, this passage describes you as chaff. That should be a sobering and vivid reality of what that entails. And I would wager that if you've not trusted Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that your life is probably not working real well. I would wager that it never will because it goes against God's design. With a great deal of confidence, I would imagine that on some level, you're feeling somewhat empty, that you're probably searching for meaning in your life and direction, and that even your best relationships never measure up to the intimacy that you long for. And let me just tell you, it, it'll never change outside of God's grace and having a real relationship with Jesus. It'll never change. If you're here this morning and you don't have this kind of a relationship with Jesus, there's no shame in just not having it all figured out. I don't know anybody in this church, including myself, who does have it figured out. But let me encourage you 
that you need to have a conversation with the Lord. But what would it be like for you to include myself or another friend in this church in that conversation and allow us to serve as just a beggar, showing another beggar where we found bread in God's mercy and grace? Let me end with these words from a commentator that I respect. He says, Psalm 1 isn't primarily about things to do, but rather experiencing things that are done. That's the gospel. Here's the staggering and perplexing beauty of the gospel. The solution to our problem of our doing wrong things is not fundamentally our doing right things, but having the right things done on our behalf. This passage teaches us who Jesus is and how He is the righteous path, who earned right standing with God and offers that freely as a gift to us. And I would encourage all of us to worship Him in that spirit of truth and turn our lives over to Him, constantly worshiping Him more, constantly loving Him more, constantly searching Him out more. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have given us life abundantly, that you would give us your rights, righteousness, that we would not have to prove anything. For if we did, we would never prove anything other than our own wickedness. Lord, this morning I pray for my friends here in the congregation. Christian and non-Christian alike, that you would draw all of us closer to yourself. May we worship you now in spirit and in truth. In the name of Christ.